All right. Well, today we come to uh, the final eight verses of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 27. If you want to go ahead and turn there and hold your place, I invite you uh, to do that. We'll also show it on the screen here in a minute or two. For the sake of time, I'm going to resist the inclination to try to recap the entire sermon series here today. Uh, I sometimes have tried to do that, and then I don't leave enough time for the current message. Uh, but I would like to appeal to you that if you missed any weeks in the series, uh, that you would go to our website or you would go to our app and, uh, and catch up with any of the weeks that you uh, missed. If this is your church home, I think this is just a good practice to have. Uh, that when you're not able to be here on a Sunday, uh, we have the technology available that you go and you catch up and you stay up to date uh, with what's going on here. It's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful practice to have. Uh, so last week we saw that as Jesus was approaching the conclusion of his sermon, he started to call people to make a decision. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus consistently has contrasted Two ways of living, two ways of thinking, two ways of being. The way of the world that is opposed to him and his way. And after spending the entire sermon doing that, he then presents us with our options. And there are only two, and we have to choose between these two. The options are, are we with him or are we against him? Like, that's how simple the, the decision is. That is the, those are the stark choices that we have. With him, against him. And throughout the conclusion of the sermon, Jesus presents us with these various choices, these uh, illustrations, if you will, uh, that, that represent him or the way of the world, and he asks us to choose between them. Will we choose the narrow gate or the wide gate is one of the choices that he asked. Will we choose the narrow road or the broad road? Those are just two ways of asking, will we choose Jesus and the way of Jesus? Or will we choose the world that is opposed to Jesus? He then asked us, and we talked about this last week as well, he asked us to choose what kind of teachers we're going to listen to. Are we going to listen to teachers that are true and represent God correctly? Or are we going to listen to teachers, give ear to teachers who are false and undermine the words of God? And now today we're going to see in verses 21 through 27 that he's going to present us with two types of disciples that we can choose to be and two types of foundations that we can build our lives upon. And he asks us again to choose. What kind of disciple will you be? What foundation will you build your life on? Really, both of these uh, sections of our final verses, uh, first section, uh, the first section is verses 21 through 25, and the second section is verses 24 through 27, both are really focused on this question, what kind of disciple are you going to be? And the choice is simple. Will we be true disciples of Jesus or will we be false disciples of Jesus? Will we be genuine? Or will we be fake? Will we be real? Or will we just be posers? 
Have we taken the name of Christ in truth? Or have we taken the name of Christ under false pretenses? Jesus is very clear in these final seven verses about the evidence that reveals whether a disciple is a true or false disciple, whether a disciple is genuine or fake, whether a disciple is real or a poser, whether we have taken his name in truth or we have taken his name under false pretenses. And here it is. According to Jesus, the test of a person's faith is obedience. Obedience to Him. That's the test of faith. It's not the kind of truth that elicits a lot of hallelujahs, is it? Whether or not someone is a true or false disciple is determined by whether or not is revealed, I might say, by whether or not that person is obedient or disobedient to Jesus. And these are not my words. This is according to Jesus himself. A true disciple is obedient. The disciple who is disobedient, Jesus says their disobedience is evidence of their duplicity. They are not genuine. This is not a popular message in 2019. I will not pretend to you that it's a particularly popular message with me. But it's a message that we need to hear. It's a message we better pay attention to. It's a message we better face the ramifications of. Because the message is from Jesus himself. And the message is true. So I'm going to read verses 21 through 27. You follow along as I do. And remember while I'm reading these again that these are the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You could put in there, preach in your name. In your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. You evildoers. That's hard to wrap our brains around. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Verses 21 through 23 
present us with two kinds of disciples or two kinds of Christians. True and false. Real, fake. We're told of Christians who will enter the kingdom of heaven and those to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. We're told of these two kinds of Christians. To all of us, both of these kinds of Christians look the same. But God knows the difference. God knows who really belongs to him and who doesn't. And Jesus presents us with some very fascinating information here. He tells us that both true and false Christians say the same things about him and their relationship with him. He lets us know that both those who will enter heaven and those who will be told to depart say to him, Lord, Lord. Both call him Lord. But those who enter heaven and those who are told to, to depart will be able, uh, I'm sorry, in addition to saying Lord, Lord, both those who enter heaven and those who are told to depart will be able to say that they did things for the Lord. That they did things in the name of the Lord. That they prophesied in his name, which again, you could call that preaching in his name. You could call that just bearing witness for him. Speaking the word of the Lord to other people. Prophesied in his name. Some are going to be able to say they performed miracles in his name. Going to be able to say that they drove out demons in his name. And if you haven't performed any miracles or haven't driven out any demons lately... You can think of this as just anything that we do in the name of Christ for the cause of Christ. People who are told to depart are going to be able to point to things they did in the name of Christ, at least ostensibly, for the cause of Christ. John Stott points out that by calling Jesus Lord, Lord, and by appealing to the things that they have done in his name, those who Christ is going to tell to depart are people, he notes, who have right theology, who have right doctrine. They have rightly identified and affirmed who Jesus is, that he's Lord. They are people who have an orthodox understanding of Jesus. By calling Him Lord, they have understood His unity with the Father and they have recognized Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. In addition to all this, Stott points out these are people who have publicly professed Christ. They, they have prophesied in His name. They've done great things in His name. To summarize, these are people who both in their private and public lives have professed Christ and they have professed Christ accurately. Based on their belief. Based on their profession. None of their peers would be able to tell the difference between those who are true Christians and those who are false Christians. And yet Jesus says 
that from those who believe and profess the same things about him, right things, orthodox things, biblically accurate things, some will enter the kingdom of heaven and some will be told to depart. And he says that what separates the two is obedience. Jesus says it is the one, the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. According to Jesus, a false Christian is one who has convinced themselves that they can rely on creedal affirmation. What they believe and what they say about Jesus for salvation. A false Christian can believe and say all the right things about Jesus, but still be a false Christian. Because they have convinced themselves of something that is not true. They have convinced themselves that they can offer verbal profession of Christ as an alternative to obedience to Christ. Let me say that again. Everybody here? You're not liking this any better than I like it, are you? I'm with you. I don't like it. But it's true. They have convinced themselves that they can offer verbal profession of Christ as an alternative to obedience to Christ and that God will be satisfied with their verbal profession absent obedience. And Jesus says it is not true. He says it is only the Christian who does the will of his Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus is telling us. True Christians are those whose verbal profession is accompanied by moral obedience. True Christians are those who what they believe and what they say matches what they do. It matches how they actually live their lives. Jesus is telling us that he is not cool with people paying lip service to him. Calling him Savior and Lord. And then choosing to live however they want. He's not cool with that. He's not down with that. I pulled it off. You chuckled at that. That's, that's good. He's not down with that. And he has never been okay with that. In Isaiah 29, 13, God lamented that his people would say they were his. He, he actually said, they honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. And he said that such people worship him in vain. And then we move to verses 24 through 27. Where Jesus tells us a story about two kinds of foundations that we can build our lives on. But the story once again is really meant to identify two kinds of disciples. True and false. And we see once again that the distinction between true and false disciples is obedience. 
Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So we no longer can say that we're building on the rock by simply offering creedal affirmation of what is true about Jesus. Jesus says it's the one who hears and then puts what they hear into practice that's building on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And just as we learned in the previous section that true and false Christians both say the same things about Jesus, we find here in verses 24 through 27 that true and false Christians both listen to, give ear to, pay attention to the teachings of Jesus. It's important to note that verses 24 through 27 are not contrasting Christians with non-Christians. I mean, it is, but not in the way that we think of it. Both the wise and the foolish are listening to teachings of Jesus. Both are, in a sense, following him, listening to him, learning from him. To everyone but God, the wise and the foolish can be indistinguishable from each other. Both are members of the visible Christian community. So both would be called Christians by all of the rest of us. Both go to church. Both may read the Bible. Both listen to sermons. Both read Christian literature. But notice Jesus says that hearing what he teaches is not the test of obedience. It's not the test of discipleship. It's not the test of faith. The test of all of those things is doing what he teaches. Being obedient to what he teaches. What these verses teach us, similar to how the previous verses taught us that false Christians offer verbal profession as an alternative to obedience, these verses teach us that false Christians offer intellectual knowledge of Christ as an alternative to obedience to Christ. They have convinced themselves that knowledge of the truth is enough. But according to Jesus, it isn't. The illustration Jesus gives is perfect. The false Christian is like a builder who knows that he has to build on rock. He knows he has, a builder knows he has to dig down and find solid ground for the foundation. He or she possesses that knowledge. They've been taught. They've heard it. They know where to build a house. They know how it ought to be done. But they don't do it that way. They have the knowledge, but having the knowledge, they go ahead and build, contrary to all the knowledge they have, they go ahead and build on the sand anyway. And this is how so many professing Christians live. We know what's right. We really do know the teachings of Jesus. 
We just don't do them. At least not the ones that we don't want to do. We'll do some of them. But when they get hard, when obedience becomes like challenging, we just opt out. We don't do the teachings of Jesus. We convince ourselves that knowing is enough. That we can get by without actually doing the good that we know to do. It is a sobering thing to think about. Intellectual knowledge of Christ is not an acceptable substitute for obedience to Christ. The test of faith is obedience. It's good to know a lot about Jesus. But Jesus is not impressed by how much we know about him. He is impressed by the obedience that results from what we know about him. That's what he's impressed by. And the implications of all of this are clear. True Christians are those whose knowledge of Christ results in obedience to Christ. And this shows up over and over and over throughout the New Testament. It really shows up over and over throughout the entire Bible. It should be noted here that even if it did not show up over and over and over throughout the Bible, Jesus said it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's really all we need to know that it is true, that it is right, and that we are responsible for what we've heard. God doesn't have to say things 20 times before we're responsible for what we've heard. He just needs to say it once. And Jesus has said it in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why I believe that people in our popular culture who say they love Jesus, they just don't like his church, I believe they haven't actually read anything Jesus said. That's what I think. I heard one guy be real honest one time. He said, I actually like the church better than I like Jesus because Jesus says so many hard things to me. I think that guy actually understood the implications of the teachings of Jesus better than those who, you know. Okay, that was off my notes. So let's get back to my notes. So, so we only have to hear something said one time by, by Jesus to be responsible for it. But this particular thing shows up over and over and over again. One of the most well-known examples of this is in the book of James, chapter 2. There's a very famous uh, passage of Scripture where James declared that faith without accompanying deeds, you can just read that, faith without obedience is dead. He affirmed what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount by noting that faith results in action. Faith results in deeds. Faith results in obedience to God. And of course, James rightly pointed out that right belief about God is good, but even demons believe right things about God. Even demons believe there is one God and tremble at that knowledge. Believing the right thing 
it has to result in obedience. We can't just be hearers of the Word. We must be doers. We can't just be people who proclaim the Word. We have to do the Word. And now attention arises here. You say, Brian, this sounds to me like works-based salvation. No, it does not sound like that. Nothing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount has suggested that salvation is obtained through human effort or good works. James did not believe that we were justified by God through human effort. What Jesus is teaching here, what James affirmed, what is affirmed throughout the entirety of the New Testament is that we are saved by grace through faith, not by our own works or deserving. But there's more to the story. What is clearly stated by Jesus and affirmed throughout the entirety of the New Testament is that the fruit of salvation is obedience to Jesus. You don't get saved because you were obedient. But if you're saved, you become obedient. Now we're a work in progress our whole lives. But we're growing in obedience. Truly saved people grow in obedience. Not the means of salvation, but it is the fruit of salvation. Now, nothing that Jesus has said in these closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount should be intended to kind of like, you know, reduce or uh, um, minimize the importance of knowing Christ, knowledge of Christ, or profession of Christ. Okay? Listening to the teaching of Jesus. Believing what is true about Jesus. Professing Christ both privately and publicly. These things are absolutely essential for the believer. This is, this is not a message to say those things don't matter. They do matter. Right belief matters. Professing Christ matters. But here's what it's meant to say. They are not a substitute for obedience. For the true Christian, again, knowledge and profession result in obedience. It is the obedient that Jesus says will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the obedient who he says will be protected in the storms of life. The, the storm that's refer, referenced in 24 through 27 could be understood a couple of different ways. It could be understood as the storms that life brings to all of us. Uh, there's a sense in which I think what is in view there is the judgment of God. That when judgment comes and reveals who's on the firm foundation and who's not, that we're going to stand in that day. And so it's the obedient who will be protected in the storms of life. It is the obedient who will be able to stand in the day of judgment. The obedient are those who have truly received Jesus the only way he can be received. As both Savior and Lord. We do not get to pick and choose how we receive Jesus. It's not either or. I can't 
I can't choose him as Savior and say, but no thanks to the Lord part. It's a package deal. It's a package deal. So when we read these words of Jesus, preserved for us in the pages of the Bible, and just as authoritative today as the day he spoke them 2,000 years ago, just as authoritative today as when he spoke them 2,000 years ago, we have a choice to make. Will we once again be the kind of disciple, will we continue to be the kind of disciple that Jesus warns us not to be? Will we once again hear the words of Jesus and satisfy ourselves with hearing? Will we leave and satisfy ourselves with knowing what Jesus said? Or maybe satisfying ourselves with bearing witness to what Jesus has said? But once again, not actually do what Jesus requires of us. Will we be satisfied with that? Again, this is very sobering. That Jesus himself has told us that hearing him, knowing about him, privately and publicly confessing him is not actually what determines whether we are with him or against him. What determines that is whether or not we are obedient to him. I have to tell you that I am concerned about the state of the church today. And I do mean that like the church, the, the whole church, but I also mean that like this church. I'm highly concerned about the state of the church. I'm concerned about what I see in the lives of many Christians. Sometimes I'm concerned about what I see in my own life. We are living in a day much like existed in the book of Judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And I see it over and over and over again in this very church. People who know what the Bible says, people who profess Christ as their Savior and Lord, but then they face a situation where they want to do something that they know they cannot do and be obedient to Jesus. And so over and over again, what I see people do is just remove Jesus from the throne of their lives. They ascend the throne of their lives and claim it for themselves and then knowing the truth even having proclaimed the truth to others they proceed to do whatever pleases them I see it over and over again and what's particularly 
sad about this is that they often claim while they have in reality dethroned Jesus from their lives, they often claim that what they're doing is okay with Jesus. Or sometimes they even claim that Jesus is somehow behind their disobedience. That somehow Jesus is directing their disobedience. So listen carefully. I'm going to drop some truth on you right now. The voice of Jesus will never guide you or affirm you in disobeying the Word of God as found in the pages of the Bible. I think that bears repeating. The voice of Jesus will never guide you or affirm you in disobeying the Word of God. It cannot happen. It will never happen. If you say that Jesus is leading you or affirming you in disobedience to the Word of God, you are simply wrong. And you are under the influence of a very different voice than the voice of Jesus. You are listening to the voice of the evil one who is bent on your destruction. So what do we do about this? What do we do about this delightfully fun teaching of Jesus today? Well, we have to examine our lives. We have to take an honest look at ourselves and say, am I being obedient to Jesus or not? Our obedience or lack thereof tells us something. We need to listen to what it's telling us. It ultimately, when you, when you get down to the bottom of it, it tells us whether we are with Jesus or against him. At least that's what Jesus says. So we might want to start to take our obedience more seriously. Because Jesus does. So if an honest examination of the evidence of your life gives you reason for concern, you need to do something about that. I want you to know today that if you examine your life and you say, I've been living in disobedience to Jesus, it does not have to stay that way. You don't have to keep living that way. Just because we've been living in disobedience, we don't have to continue. Jesus continually offers to us and presents to us the opportunity to make a better choice. He wants us to make that better choice. And so he invites me and he invites you again today to choose to live in obedience to him. And really, in a sense, it's not that hard to do. It really just involves giving up our rights, 
and saying, Jesus, I'm finally going to surrender to you. If we do that, then here's what happens. The Holy Spirit then empowers the obedience. We don't actually have to like always just white knuckle it. It's, it's not just all about us. The Holy Spirit empowers it at the moment that we'll truly just give up and yield and say, okay, I am going to let you be Lord of my life. He invites us today to move beyond just hearing him, to move beyond just professing belief in him, to move beyond hearing, believing, and telling others about him. He invites us today to begin to respond to him the way that he requires, which is as Lord, which means in obedience. He invites us to obedience again today. I appeal to all of us to get down off of the throne of our lives, to release all of our rights, to finally, once and for all, make the decision, God, I am yielded to you, even in the places where I don't like what you're requiring of me, I acknowledge you are right and I am wrong. I will yield. I will be obedient to you. And I believe that when we do that from a genuine heart, the Holy Spirit comes in and the Holy Spirit empowers our obedience. Let's choose today to be obedient to Jesus. Let's stand. 